Today's episode is sponsored by Audible. Audible offers a selection of thousands of audiobooks across every genre. As a new member, you can get a 30-day trial subscription free, and you can download and keep one free audiobook. And if you sign up using my special code, audibletrial.com slash UNKSoldiersPod, you will contribute $15 towards this podcast. Free audiobooks to go with an amazing podcast, now that is a great deal. If you're looking for a good audiobook to try, today I'm recommending Edward M. Kaufman's The War to End All Wars, The American Military Experience in World War I. This is the gold standard military history of the United States' involvement in the Great War, from the initial recruitment and training, to deployment, to all the big battles of the Doughboys. It is informative and thorough and well-written, and free for a first-time listener. So once again, that is audibletrial.com slash unksoldierspod. On with the show. The year, 1918. The place, the Western Front. World War I is at its climax when the Americans arrive in France. Among them are the African-American 369th Infantry Regiment. They will ascend into legend as the Harlem Hellfighters. But they have to wage two wars. One against the Germans in the trenches, the other against racism at home. I'm James Hauser and welcome to Unknown Soldiers. Welcome back to the Unknown Soldiers Podcast. I am your host, James Hauser, and this is episode 44, Hellfighters. Today's episode tells the story of the African-American soldiers of World War I, including but not limited to the 369th Infantry Regiment, the famous Harlem Hellfighters. But this is also the story of how the war affected the African-American community. I'm going to expand on things today that I talked about briefly in a much older episode, episode 10 after the armistice. That is the story of black Americans after the armistice, a collective saga of a community far beyond just the hellfighters. Guys, this will be a heavy episode. I'm going to be talking a lot about the history of racism in America. Subjects like Jim Crow laws, the KKK, lynching, mob violence, racism that is so ludicrously evil that it sounds made up. There is a violent event in this episode that is so horrible that I will give you a warning before I start talking about it in episode. It is that bad. Legitimately the worst act of violence I have described in this podcast. I am going to describe the lynching of Mary Turner. And when I talk about it, I want you to know that I'm not doing it for shock value or for morbid fascination, but because it is necessary. Some things are so horrible that they have to be told exactly as they happened, kind of like the Holocaust. And there are some folks out there, some, who would prefer that you never heard about this. People who want to erase any of this from America's history books. People who think that talking about America's racial past is somehow divisive, unnecessary, unwanted, downright disruptive. They don't want it to be told, but this kind of stuff needs to be told. So with that in mind, there is some unusually nasty violence in this episode. Please be forewarned. So this is not just history, not just military history, but the history of race in America. Podcast remains PG-13, language is all clean, content is not, 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 not. Some X-rated bad stuff happens in today's episode. 
Once again, I will give a warning before the single worst incident, but some of the stuff I discussed today is downright disturbing. It disturbs me. Next, all my sources will be on my website, unknownsoldierspodcast.com. Finally, any errors, mispronunciations, or mistakes are my own. Everything I'm telling you is accurate to the best of my knowledge. This was a real story with real people who don't deserve to be unknown soldiers. Today's story begins with two memorials, one for a warrior and one for a victim. In 2015, President Barack Obama formally presented a posthumous Congressional Medal of Honor to Sergeant Henry Johnson. Henry Johnson had single-handedly fought off a German trench raid on the Western Front in 1918, and he was black, a soldier in one of the greatest fighting units in U.S. Army history, the 369th Infantry Regiment known to legend as the Harlem Hellfighters. His Medal of Honor came over 80 years after his death. Also in the 2010s, the state of Georgia erected a historical marker in Lowndes County to commemorate a series of lynchings, the extrajudicial murder of 13 black people in 1918. One of those victims was Mary Turner, a young, married, pregnant black woman. The marker was erected to remind Americans of the horrific racial violence that had dominated the Jim Crow South in the 1910s. Within a few years, the plaque was riddled with 27 bullet holes from unknown assailants, yes, in the 2010s, just as Mary Turner's body had been a hundred years earlier. The marker had to be removed. The reason I link these two events is that Mary Turner was lynched five days after Henry Johnson's heroic actions in the trenches of France. The triumph and the tragedy of the African-American experience in World War I, the pride and glory of their national service and sacrifice, and the horrors of the racism that they faced at home are part of the same story. It is impossible to talk about American history, at least honestly, people will try, without talking about race. And that includes American military history. World War I came at a time that black historian Rayford Logan has called the nadir of American race relations, when racism was more violent and more powerful than at any other time in American history, and he was including slavery in that. The black soldiers of World War I were fighting on two fronts, one against the Germans overseas and one against racism at home. This racism was pervasive, powerful, and ugly. It is one of the great shadows looming over America to this day. Its scars are still felt. Its legacies are still apparent. And no one felt that shadow deeper or struggled harder against it than the African-American community during the Great War. Because this isn't just military history. This isn't just a war story. Military history cannot be separated from other kinds of history. It affects everything else and is affected by everything else. The Great War transformed the African-American community. Their soldiers came home from France determined to resist white racism and stand up for their rights, and they sparked an awakening across black America. This resulted in some of the worst racial violence in American history, but also set the United States on the road to the civil rights movement. The Great War and its aftermath are one of the pivotal events in world history, including the history of African Americans, or black Americans. And I hope I can give that story, the whole story, the justice it deserves. Let's meet the Hellfighters. Today, we'll be talking about the African-American experience of the Great War, focusing on, but not limited to, the 369th Infantry Regiment, a.k.a. the 15th New York National Guard, 
aka the Harlem Hellfighters. We're going to start by looking at the black community and what they were under, how they lived on the eve of the Great War. We'll learn how black soldiers were organized, trained, and led. We'll follow them into the trenches of the Western Front, and we will see how the Great War came home, how violence erupted across America after the armistice, how the conflict transformed black American history forever. And at the end, I will tell you why it matters. You should care, and I'm going to tell you why. And because this episode will get heavy, you are going to need some breaks. These are your chance to pause, take a walk in the park, grab a snack, do the thing you need to do. So adjust your gas mask, grab your bolo knife, and climb out of the trenches. And remember that the Germans aren't the only enemy you face. When the Great War is over, another war begins. Let's go on campaign. On April 2nd, 1917, President Woodrow Wilson went before Congress to ask for a declaration of war against Germany. After listing German provocations, especially their use of unrestricted submarine warfare, Wilson declared, The world must be made safe for democracy. Congress agreed. Four days later, on April 6, 1917, the United States entered the war to end all wars. Wilson's phrase, to make the world safe for democracy, became America's rallying cry of World War I. But to the around 12% of the population who were African American, those words felt very hollow. How could they fight a war for democracy overseas when they had so little democracy at home? Guys, I want to get something across right now. I got to drive this home. When it comes to anti-black racism and discrimination in this period of American history, in the Jim Crow period, I think a lot of people don't understand still just how freaking bad it was, how ugly it was. Some of this was emotionally difficult to research. A lot of it still shocks me. America in the 1910s was a white supremacist country. I do not mean that as a buzzword, I don't mean that as an insult, I mean that literally. I mean those words exactly as they are said. Black people had no political power, barely any rights, they were citizens in name only. What civil rights they had gained after the Civil War had vanished. Even slavery, a lot of times sharecropping was virtual slavery, slavery by another name. It was at its worst in the South, under the regime that is often called Jim Crow. Jim Crow was a combination of laws that enforced segregation and subservience to white authority, combined with a pervasive extra-legal regime of terror and violence. Black people in the South were not allowed to vote, sit on juries, give testimony in court, or hold public office. They lived under crushing poverty, and there were all these institutions set up to make sure they stayed there. Segregation and discrimination are universal. That much is famous. You you see the pictures of the water fountains that say white only, but that's really just the tip of the iceberg that was Jim Crow. What really gets me is the sheer humiliation that white Southerners enforced. 
Black people were basically forced to bow and scrape in front of white people, and any hint of defiance was met with immediate violence. Black people who tried to resist Jim Crow, even for not showing proper deference to white men on the street, could be assaulted, beaten, shot, and murdered with impunity. No one was going to arrest the white people for doing that, and no white jury would convict them. The most brutal violence inflicted on Southern black people was lynching. Sometimes the victim was accused of a crime, often the rape of a white woman, but lynchings could occur for any reason or no reason at all. Southern whites lynched 54 black people in 1916, less than a quarter of whom were accused of sex crimes. There were 70 lynchings in 1917, the year Wilson proclaimed his crusade for democracy. A black man in Louisiana was lynched for being a vagrant. Another one in Alabama for insolence. Another in Georgia for questioning the word of a white man. The entire point of a lynching was that no one was ever punished. State and local authorities rarely prosecuted, and white juries almost never convicted lynchers. They were communalized acts of almost ritualized murder and mutilation that white people treated like a festival. The whole community came out to see a black man hung and shot and burned. People sold souvenirs, including photographs or body parts of the victim. It was a message. It was an assertion that in the Jim Crow South, the law protected white people but did not restrain them, restrained black people but did not protect them. There's a reason that black historian Rayford Logan calls this the nadir of American race relations. When anti-black racism was at its most poisonous and violent, worse than the times that came before or after it, honestly. There had been a lot of hope around Woodrow Wilson's election. He had a reputation as an idealist professor type who believed in democracy. But Woodrow Wilson was the most racist U.S. president of the 20th century, a firm believer in white supremacy. As the black mathematician Kelly Miller said, He believed in democracy for humanity, but not for Mississippi. Wilson's presidency was a time when things did not get better, not he didn't even say the same, but actively got worse for black people in America. His administration purged black people from the federal government and turned a blind eye to lynching. And in 1915, D.W. Griffith released the film Birth of a Nation, which depicted the end of the Civil War and Reconstruction. Birth of a Nation is one of the most important films ever released. It has a bunch of new techniques and technologies and editing concepts that tell the story. It is also one of the most gut-wrenchingly racist movies ever made, framing the Ku Klux Klan as noble heroes protecting white women from the lustful passions of savage black assailants. It was the first movie ever shown in the White House. President Wilson loved it, of course. The film inspired the rebirth and rapid growth of the KKK after 1915. Welcome to Woodrow Wilson's America. For this and like 10 other reasons, he is my least favorite president. Black people fled the Jim Crow South, obviously. In what was called the Great Migration from around 1910 onwards, over 6 million black people moved north to find new jobs in the industrial cities. The north wasn't always great. But it was better. Black people could build businesses and communities, speak their minds, publish newspapers, and vote without fear of being picked up by a white mob and taken to some dark corner of Georgia and murdered. 
prosperous black communities blossomed in Chicago, Washington, D.C., and especially New York in the District of Harlem. Harlem was the wellspring of black American culture in the World War I period, a proud, prosperous, well-educated community that served as a haven for refugees fleeing the South. But they weren't always welcome. Urban whites, often immigrants from Italy or Ireland or Poland, resented the black newcomers that drove down their wages. Corporate bosses often used black migrants to break strikes, bringing race into the industrial labor wars that had been raging since the Civil War. One of the main reasons the labor movement in America was never very powerful, labor unions haven't been as powerful as in Europe, is because the working class was divided by race. White unions refused to let black workers in, and so the white factory owners were able to use black workers to break strikes very often, thus also uh, inflaming racial animosity in the, in the urban centers of the North, with dire results. In July 1917, only a couple of months after America joined World War I, violence broke out in East St. Louis. The mostly white workers of the Aluminum Ore Company decided to go on strike, and the company brought in black workers from the South to replace them. Tensions rose between the two groups, especially when it was rumored that black men had been seen with white women. Things really popped off on July 1st, 1917, when white men drove a car through the black areas of East St. Louis, shooting at random black pedestrians. When another car drove through an hour later, black people assumed that it was another drive-by shooting and opened fire, accidentally killing two plainclothes white police officers. The next day, a white mob stormed the black neighborhoods of East St. Louis, beating every black person they found, lighting buildings on fire, shooting anyone who tried to escape. They even cut the hoses on the fire engines to keep the fire department from putting out the fires. The police either ignored or encouraged them. A reporter wrote, For an hour and a half last evening, I saw the massacre of helpless Negroes at Broadway and 4th Street in downtown East St. Louis, where black skin was a death warrant. Another one said, Ten or fifteen young girls, about eighteen years old, chased a Negro woman at the Relay Depot at about five o'clock. The girls were brandishing clubs and calling upon the men to kill the woman. If this reminds me of anything, it reminds me of Europe under Nazi Germany in the late 30s, early 40s, and how communities treated their Jews. As many as 150 black people died in the East St. Louis race riot, a massacre in a northern city where black people were supposed to be safe. Most newspapers blamed black people for inciting the violence. The black American community reacted with shock and anger. On July 28, 1917, the citizens of Harlem, New York, staged a silent protest march. The march was organized by James Weldon Johnson, the NAACP's new field secretary, a man who would emerge as one of the most prominent voices in black America. Men in their suits and women in their Sunday best carried picket signs that begged the federal government to take action. One sign said, Mr. President, why not make America safe for democracy? President Wilson did nothing, said nothing. He pretended that this stuff didn't happen. Even in the North, white supremacy seemed to have an invincible chokehold on American society. Who could stand against it? Some saw no other option than accommodation, just living with it. 
One of them was the famous black educator Booker T. Washington. Washington's program was called the Atlanta Compromise, which said that black people should endure Jim Crow, accept white supremacy, and build up their own separate institutions. And maybe someday, black people would earn the right to be treated like human beings and full citizens, just waiting for white people to change their minds. Washington died in 1915, but his approach to race relations still dominated the black community. After all, what other option was there? But some rejected the Atlanta Compromise. They, did, they weren't willing to sit down and accept it. They included a new organization, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, or NAACP. Founded in 1909, still a very new organization, the NAACP promoted active resistance to Jim Crow and white supremacy. It decried lynchings, discrimination, and race riots, drawing attention to the conditions that black people endured in the South. Many of its leaders were white. The only black man on the NAACP board at its founding was William Edward Burghardt Du Bois, better known as W.E.B. Du Bois. W.E.B. Du Bois was maybe the best-known spokesman for the black community during World War I, though he did not speak for everyone. A lot of other black leaders thought he was insufferable and arrogant. Du Bois was the first black graduate of Harvard Law School, and he was a distinguished author and professor. The NAACP put Du Bois in charge of its monthly magazine called The Crisis. Based in Harlem, the crisis was one of the leading voices in the black press, rivaled only by the Chicago Defender. But Du Bois and his NAACP colleagues were still a minority voice in black America. Under the constant threat of white violence, most saw little choice but to bear the brunt of Jim Crow and pray and hope that someday white people would change their minds and accept them. The shadow of the lynching tree held sway over all. So you can imagine how a lot of black people felt when Woodrow Wilson vowed to make the world safe for democracy. They had every reason not to support the war, but most of them did. Let's talk about why. Black Americans had long seen military service as a road to equality. Frederick Douglass had said during the Civil War, Let the black man get upon his person the brass letters U.S., let him get an eagle on his buttons and a musket on his shoulder and bullets in his pocket, and there is no power on the earth which can deny that he has earned the right to citizenship. Black Union soldiers served in the Civil War, helping to achieve their own liberation from slavery. And ever since the Civil War, the ranks of the U.S. Army had included black regiments with mostly white officers, the 24th and 25th Infantry and the 9th and 10th Cavalry. The so-called Buffalo Soldiers were some of the Army's best units. They had earned distinction in the Indian Wars, the Spanish-American War, the Philippine War, and in the recent border warfare with Mexico. The Buffalo Soldiers were a point of pride for the black community, widely viewed as one of the leading edges of black achievement in America. And Americans of all races viewed military service in terms of citizenship and manhood. Citizenship, the idea that you are a member of the national community with rights and responsibilities. Manhood, that you are a person of self-worth and you deserve dignity and respect as a man. Military service, as an obligation of wartime citizenship and as a test of wartime manhood, 
seemed like an avenue for black people to show that they were worthy of being treated like citizens and like men. Two things that white supremacists continue to deny. W.E.B. Du Bois believed that black military service in World War I was the road to equality. He urged black Americans to lay the cause aside for the time being and rally around the flag during the Great War. In a brief editorial in The Crisis, often just called Close Ranks, he urged black Americans to answer Woodrow Wilson's call to fight for democracy. This is the crisis of the world. That which the German power represents today spells death to the aspirations of Negroes and all darker races for equality, freedom, and democracy. Let us not hesitate. Let us, while this war lasts, forget our special grievances and close our ranks shoulder to shoulder with our own white fellow citizens. Du Bois and other leaders seemed to believe in an implicit bargain that black loyalty in the war would earn them their rights after the war. Now, not all black Americans agreed with Du Bois. Some radicals saw his close-ranked stance as a betrayal of the African-American cause. A. Philip Randolph and Chandler Owen, black journalists who opposed the war and leaned somewhat towards socialism, responded to du-, du Bois' plea to close ranks. Let Du Bois, Kelly, Miller, etc. volunteer to go to France to make the world safe for democracy. We would rather make Georgia safe for the Negro. And I mean, fair point. Why should we sacrifice our lives for democracy overseas when we don't have democracy at home? But most black Americans agreed with Du Bois' stance. They saw military service in World War I not just as a duty or a patriotic obligation, but as a chance to prove themselves to be part of the American nation, that they deserve to be treated as equals. The majority of black Americans responded enthusiastically to Wilson's call to arms. Black people bought war bonds, joined rallies, waved American flags, and cheered on the war effort. And they volunteered. With the war to end all wars on the horizon, black Americans saw their opportunity to serve and serve honorably, and maybe, finally, be given the respect they deserved as citizens and men. The problem was... White supremacists knew that black military service would advance the cause of racial equality. For this reason, they were prepared to do whatever it took to prevent or undermine it. White military and civil authorities would humiliate, degrade, and deny black military service throughout World War I. It was their way of making sure that the racial status quo would not change, that the Negro would still be denied the rights of the citizen and the man. Southern politicians like Senators Ben Tillman of South Carolina and James Vardaman of Mississippi argued against arming black soldiers. They conjured up images of armed Negroes returning to America to wreak havoc on white women. Vardaman said, Universal military service means that millions of Negroes who come under this measure will be armed. I know of no greater menace to the South than this. Others questioned African-American loyalty, seeing any sign of movement for racial equality as evidence of radicalism or socialism. Lots of people shuddered at the thought of armed black men in training camps across the South coming into direct contact with Jim Crow. And then an incident happened in Texas that seemed to fulfill all these fears. 
In August 1917, Buffalo soldiers of the 24th Infantry moved to a new duty station near Houston, Texas, where they came into conflict with the locals. The, so the soldiers refused to abide by Jim Crow laws and carried a self-confident attitude that horrified the local white authorities. The pot boiled over on August 23rd when two black soldiers saw a police officer beating the black woman and tried to intervene. They were both arrested and beaten. When they got back to camp, the Buffalo soldiers decided that they had had enough. Defying the orders of their white officers, the black soldiers gathered weapons and marched into the city. The ensuing shootout resulted in 11 dead whites, including five policemen, along with five black soldiers. The fallout of the violence shocked the nation. The root of the incident was racial injustice, a violent lashing out against a racial order that had denied black people the rights and dignity they deserved. 19 of the Buffalo soldiers were eventually court-martialed and sentenced to death, with not even a chance to organize their own defense. The executions outraged many black Americans. Ida B. Wells Barnett, a Chicago-based black feminist known for her anti-lynching activism, openly protested what she called the martyrdom of Negro soldiers. When she was investigated by government authorities who suspected her of sedition, she defied them. I'd rather go down in history as one lone Negro who dared to tell the government that it had done a dastardly thing than to save my skin by taking back what I have said. The Houston incident cast a permanent shadow over black service in World War I. Many white people use it as evidence of what they've been saying all along, that the armed black soldier was a dangerous, poisonous element in a white nation. Even in 1940, on the eve of World War II, white supremacists were still bringing up the Houston Mutiny as evidence that black soldiers could not be trusted. The mutiny was also a shock to the U.S. Army, since the Buffalo Soldiers had always been very disciplined and nothing like this had ever happened with them before. The War Department had to change its entire training regime. From now on, no training camp would be permitted to have a majority of black soldiers. There would always have to be a two-to-one ratio of white to black soldiers to prevent any more incidents like Houston. So this was a situation that faced the black community as they prepared to enter World War I. But they still answered the call. And the call was loudest, and at its most musical, in Harlem. New York City's black community had wanted to form a militia unit for a long time but they only got permission to do so in 1916, on the condition that the senior officers would have to be white. The 15th New York National Guard was authorized on June 29, 1916, with a prominent lawyer named William Hayward serving as the regiment's colonel. Hayward was a surprisingly tolerant man for 1910's America. He knew that he could never succeed in organizing the regiment without the support of the black community. So he hit up Harlem's church leaders, business owners, and activist class, the men and women who had been lobbying for a black regiment this whole time. Hayward ensured the retention of several black officers in his new unit, including Charles Fillmore, a Spanish-American war veteran, George Lacey, formerly of the 8th Illinois Militia, and Napoleon Bonaparte Marshall, a prominent black attorney, all of whom would serve as company commanders in France. In the spring of 1917, Hayward learned that if his regiment was going to enter federal service, he would need to bring its numbers up to 2,000 men. He would have to find over 1,000 recruits, and fast. But recruitment was lagging. Word wasn't getting out fast enough. Some of Harlem's 50,000 black residents didn't even know the regiment existed. 
So Colonel Hayward deployed his secret weapon, the Regimental Band, led by revolutionary black musician James Reese Europe. Europe was a cutting-edge pioneer in the Harlem music scene. He had a flamboyant, flashy style, training his musicians in complex chords, swing rhythms, and syncopated beats. In a period where most white people's experience with black music was blackface minstrel shows, which they thought was black music, Jim Europe's band lit up New York City with its unique electrifying style, referred to as Hot Style Ragtime. When his band played Carnegie Hall in 1912, it was New York City's first experience of something that was not yet called jazz. So Colonel Hayward tapped Jim Europe to form a regimental band for recruitment purposes. Europe hunted down talented musicians like drum major and singer Noble Sissel, bugler Isla White, and two drummers, Stephen and Herbert Wright, called the Percussion Twins. Europe traveled to Puerto Rico to recruit 13 members for his horn section, so there was a Latino element to the regiment's new band. Soon Big Jim Europe, already a living legend in the Harlem music scene, had assembled what Colonel Hayward called the best damn brass band in the U.S. Army, 44 strong. All of them would serve in the trenches in World War I. Europe's band stormed the streets of Harlem, combining the martial fervor of John Philip Sousa with the syncopated bouncy beat of the new black music style sweeping the nation. Harlem's people came to their windows to hear the ruckus, saw Jim Europe and his horn swaggering down the street, and the recruits came. Some had been born in New York, some were new arrivals, some were Buffalo Soldier veterans in their 40s, some were privates in their teens, some were well below 18. There was Spotswood Poles, a famous Negro League baseball player, George Cotton, a professional boxer who had sparred with heavyweight champion Jack Johnson. Private James Turpin said democracy was worth fighting for. He loved America and the flag. Private John Jameson wrote poems. Private Needham Roberts lied about his age. He was 15, the son of a New Jersey preacher. Private Horace Pippin was a wannabe artist. Private Henry Johnson was a, was a baggage handler who liked dice and whiskey. All of them believed that what they were doing wasn't just for their nation, to, but for their community to show the rest of America that black citizenship and black manhood were worth fighting for. 2,000 strong, the 15th New York National Guard was accepted into federal service, where they became the 369th Infantry Regiment. History remembers them as the Harlem Hellfighters. As America mobilized for the Great War, its leaders grappled with what they called the race question. Black people were going to play a part in the war effort. They made up a significant part of the population. But what was that part? Of course, this never would have been a question if people weren't really freaking racist. But America's mobilization for World War I was marked by racial prejudice every step of the way. The U.S. armed forces routinely sacrificed military efficiency to cater to white supremacy, 
They did things that actively harmed U.S. military performance. When black soldiers experienced racism especially, the military establishment bent over backwards to side with the racists. Every single time. Black Americans had limited options when it came to military service. The Marine Corps, for instance, refused to accept any black men into its ranks and would continue to do so until World War II. The Navy would only use black people for menial duties, never on an equal footing with whites. Some captains outright refused to let any black people onto their ships. That left the Army. Secretary of War Newton D. Baker and Army Chief of Staff's Tasker H. Bliss set to work on the thorny issue of black soldiers. There were three categories of black soldiers during World War I. There were the Buffalo Soldiers, the veteran black regulars, the National Guard units from various states, including the 15th New York, which were all volunteers, and black civilians who were being called up by the Selective Service Act, aka the draft. The Buffalo Soldiers were never sent to France, not after Houston. The War Department never sent its elite black units to the trenches of the Western Front. They kept them home or sent them to the Philippines. The National Guardsmen, we'll talk about. But the draftees presented a different problem. The draft was dominated by racial discrimination. Draft boards were appointed by local governments, which meant that in the South they were just another version of Jim Crow. There were certain conditions that it could, could exempt you from the draft, but in the South, with their all-white Jim Crow draft boards, black draftees were much less likely to get an exemption. The draft board of Fulton County, Georgia, granted exemptions to 526 out of 815 white draftees, but only 6 of 202 black draftees. The result was that black America provided a disproportionate number of wartime conscripts, something like 10% of the eligible population and 14% of the draftees. Most of these men were assigned to construction and labor units. The Army's high command catered to the racist belief that black men were best suited for work that fit their supposed physical strength and low mental state. And the black labor units were given less of everything. Their mess halls were inadequate, their health care was poor, and they were forbidden many freedoms and privileges that white soldiers received. Sometimes black units built barracks for white units to live in while they slept in tents in the rain. The YMCA refused to let black draftees use its facilities in America or overseas to prevent black soldiers from coming into contact with white women volunteers. The idea of a white woman handing a black soldier a cup of coffee was so appalling and anathema to white racists that they just kept the black soldiers out of the YMCA altogether. Best of all, the white officers and labor units were usually Southern. This came from the, um, interesting notion that Southern white people knew how to handle black people. Dominated by white officers with the Jim Crow mindset, with little regard for their health or well-being, black soldiers, as in the labor units, worked under near-slavery conditions. One black draftee wrote to W.E.B. Du Bois, The lieutenant and captain walk about on the drill field with a whip in his hand like the boys were convicts on the state farm. So you see what I'm talking about. Even when they were actively serving in the war effort, black soldiers in the labor units were not treated like citizens or like men. They were given little military training and no weapons. Many of them weren't even given the khaki uniform, the thing that would mark them out as soldiers and citizens and men. They were forced to wear the same blue overalls they would have worn back in the South. After all, 
They weren't soldiers, they were laborers. The whole concept was that every black soldier doing the nasty drudgery work freed up a more valuable white man for the combat units. It made sense, if you were racist. Myths about black inferiority justified their almost complete exclusion from combat units. Almost. Despite the spittle-flecked howling of southern politicians, the War Department decided to form one combat division from black draftees. This unit was established on October 24, 1917 at Camp Funston, Kansas as the 92nd Division. Camp Funston is now part of uh, Fort Riley. Uh, I have served there. <laughs> All of the enlisted men would be black. But who would lead them? The Army was openly hostile to the very idea of black officers. One observer said, Unfortunately for the Negro, in his present level of culture, not many men of his color can be found who are qualified for positions of command. The Army decided to use some black officers under certain conditions. No more than 2% of the Army's officers would be black, despite black Americans making up 14% of draftees. They would be limited in rank to captain and below, and it was widely understood that they would be quietly removed as soon as possible on any excuse. The army leadership had no interest in seeing black officers succeed. Quite the opposite. Military efficiency, right? One of the very few black officers on active duty was Colonel Charles Young of the 10th Cavalry, a hero to the African-American community. He had done outstanding service in the Spanish and Philippine Wars, and had led the 10th Cavalry in Mexico as recently as 1916. If the army had been blind to color, he would have certainly received a general's commission. But this would have implied white officers taking orders from blacks. And Woodrow Wilson put the kibosh on that. Wilson had Colonel Young forcibly retired from the army due to supposed health problems that were probably invented. Charles Young would have been an obvious choice to lead the 92nd Division, but in 1917, the idea of a black general was a non-starter. It was unacceptable that a black officer might ever command whites in Woodrow Wilson's army. The black community achieved one small victory. The army hadn't intended to train any new black officers at all. They were just going to have white officers command all the black troops. But under pressure from the NAACP and other organizations, the Army opened one, segregated, training school for black junior officers at Des Moines, Iowa. The NAACP and other organizations recruited 1,250 black officer candidates, 1,000 from civilian life, and 250 NCOs from the Buffalo Soldier Regiments. Almost all of the Des Moines officer candidates were destined for the Army's only black division, the 92nd. The black officer candidates at Des Moines received substandard training, focusing mainly on infantry skills, with very little training in administration, supply, or the supporting arms. This was in contrast to the training white officers received. The 92nd's black artillery officers were the only ones in the Army who never got the full program. So, of course, when their performance in these areas wasn't so great, it was used as evidence that they were inherently inferior. This is racist logic. Knock the black man down, then use the fact that he's on the ground as evidence that he deserves to stay there. Black officers ran into prejudice wherever they went. White soldiers refused to salute them. One post commander told them to their faces that he didn't want them on his installation. Most of the 92nd's white senior officers were Southern with, once again, 
the mindset that Southerners understood how to lead black people. The 90 seconds white officers were also just not the best, the bottom of the barrel, because most white officers didn't want to lead black soldiers. Many of the 90 seconds officers outright and openly hated the black soldiers they led. Finally, the 92nd Division was scattered in numerous posts all over the country because after Houston, the army forbade concentrating large numbers of black soldiers in a single location. So unlike every other division that went to France, it never trained as a unit. None of these things were true of the other all-white divisions of the U.S. Army. Compared to every other American division of World War I, the 92nd was uniquely crippled, not because of race, but because of racism. W.E.B. Du Bois later accused the Army of setting the 92nd Division up to fail. If they didn't, well, you couldn't really tell the difference. There was one final insult. When a black sergeant stationed at Camp Funston tried to go to a theater in nearby Manhattan, Kansas, he was refused admittance, even though Kansas law prohibited discrimination. The resulting kerfluffle prompted General Charles Ballou, the 92nd's commander, to issue Bulletin number 35. Here's some of what that bulletin said. This sergeant entered a theater and precipitated trouble by making it possible to allege race discrimination in the seat he was given. He is strictly within his legal rights in this matter, and the theater manager is legally wrong. Nevertheless, the sergeant is guilty of the greater wrong in doing anything, no matter how legally correct, that will provoke racial animosity. The bulletin outraged every black soldier in the 92nd Division and in the black community. <laughs> even when the black soldier did nothing wrong, even when he was legally correct, white racism was still his fault. What's crazy is that General Ballou really believed in his division. He wanted it to succeed. He was trying to prevent a racist outburst in Kansas against his soldiers. But by laying the responsibility of white supremacy at the feet of his men, he broke the morale of the 92nd Division. General Ballou issued his bulletin in April 1918. Two months later, the 92nd Division left for France. Badly organized, badly trained, badly led with broken morale, set up to fail. And if it did fail, everyone knew who would be blamed. The War Department's final racial dilemma lay in the Black National Guard units, almost all from northern states. They had been slated to join the White National Guard units, but the White divisions refused to accept them. When uh, Colonel Hayward of the 369th tried to join the Rainbow Division, the 42nd Division, he was told that black was not one of the colors of the rainbow. Still, as much as the Army didn't really want black units, refusing to take them at all was just stupid. So the army decided to turn the Black National Guardsmen into three infantry regiments and add a fourth regiment of black draftees to form the 93rd Provisional Division. It was provisional because the division had no supporting arms or even really a headquarters, just the four infantry regiments. The 8th Illinois, an all-black militia unit led by black Colonel Franklin Dennison, became the 370th Infantry. The unit of draftees became the 371st. The leftover National Guard units, like a battalion from Washington, D.C., a battalion from Ohio, and companies from other states, were merged into the 372nd. Finally, the Harlem Regiment, Colonel Hayward's boys with Jim Europe's brilliant band that had led the recruitment drive in the streets of New York City, became the 369th. 
The 93rd was a division in name only. Its men did not train together and never fought together as a unit. But their soldiers were not drafted. They were mostly enthusiastic volunteers. They were mostly led by white and black northern officers with less of the Jim Crow attitudes. Northern black volunteers had a higher average level of education, and they were imbued with a sense of community, self-worth, and the importance of their example to the black Americans as a whole. The four regiments of the 93rd had higher morale, greater cohesion, and better trust in their leadership than the abused and mistreated 92nd. The reason for all these differences was very, very obvious if you didn't just see them all as black. And out of all the 93rd's regiments, none would shine brighter than the boys from Harlem, the 369th. After mustering into federal service, the 369th moved from Harlem to Camp Whitman near Peekskill, New York. The regiment had had barely any training so far. Most of its men still didn't have rifles or uniforms. Even at Camp Whitman, the men assigned to guard duty only had 250 rifles to rotate between them. Most of their very basic military training, marching in formation, saluting, taking cover, was performed with sticks. Colonel Hayward was frustrated by what he saw was neglect and pleaded for a chance to get some real training for his men. But after the Houston incident, Army policy dictated the two-to-one ratio, limiting who could train where and when. They couldn't send the 369th to train anywhere until there were enough white units at that location. Another example of racial prejudice damaging military efficiency. Finally, the 369th was designated for combat training. The black New Yorkers, with their high sense of self-worth, booming morale, and politically activist mindset, were ordered to Camp Wadsworth outside Spartanburg, South Carolina, the heartland of the Jim Crow South. Everyone knew there would be trouble. Southern whites were nearly foaming at the mouth over the idea of black soldiers from the North training in their backyards. The mayor of Spartanburg told the Chamber of Commerce that, They will probably expect to be treated like white men. I can say right now they will not be treated as anything except Negroes. We shall treat them exactly as we treat our resident Negroes. This thing is like waving a red flag in the face of a bull. Colonel Hayward told his men that the Jim Crow attitudes were the result of ignorance and prejudice, and that they had to behave carefully and correctly. Just keep your heads down, get through this. And for the first week, everything went well. The only issue was that some of the soldiers just refused to serve the black soldiers. Unusually, the white New York National Guardsmen, also training at Camp Wadsworth, boycotted the stores in Spartanburg, refusing to give their business to establishments that insulted their fellow soldiers. A surprising display of cross-racial solidarity in 1910s America. But the mayor of Spartanburg had not been wrong when he said that black soldiers were like a red cape to a bull. Many white people in Spartanburg were infuriated by the sight of black soldiers. Captain Napoleon Marshall, a New York lawyer and Harvard graduate, was thrown off a streetcar and called a dirty N-word. Uniformed soldiers were pushed into gutters by white passersby. There was just an atmosphere of seething racial resentment in the air. In October 1917, Noble Sissel, the drum major of Jim Europe's band, went into a hotel lobby to try and buy a newspaper. The hotel manager told him to take off his hat. White people could wear hats in his establishment, but not Negroes. When Sissel didn't move quickly enough, the hotel manager knocked the hat off his head, knocked him to the ground, and started kicking him. Lieutenant Jim Europe had to intervene to keep open violence from breaking out. 
This was a small incident, but the War Department heard about it and decided that this was it. Despite the fact that the uh, 369th Regiment had behaved correctly in every possible way, there could be no risk of another Houston. Black combat units were completely unwelcome in the South. So instead of protecting their soldiers from the violence of civilians, the Army decided to bow to Jim Crow and move the Harlem Regiment on. Furthermore, the Army decided to send the 369th to France earlier than almost every other unit in the U.S. Army. Only 12 days after arriving in Spartanburg, the 369th Regiment was shipped back north, headed for New York in a transport ship. The Harlem Regiment set sail for Europe in December 1917, the first black combat unit headed over there. The Europeans had very different attitudes about black soldiers in combat. As we've seen from the fighting going on in the Great War in Africa, everyone was using black soldiers, at least in Africa. All the main European combatants used black soldiers to some degree, though most of them did not use them on the Western Front. The British and Germans in particular never used black soldiers in Europe itself. They used them in Africa, but not Europe. Then there were the French. The French Senegalese regiments had fought in France itself from the very earliest days of World War I. The French were relatively, relatively less prejudiced about race than the other Europeans. They were happy to use black soldiers in the trenches. So the French accepted black American soldiers with open arms. And black soldiers in France definitely noticed the contrast between how their own people treated them and how the French treated them. But when the 369th arrived in France, they posed, once again, a dilemma for American leaders. General John Pershing, commander of the American Expeditionary Force, was not the most prejudiced officer in the army. He had gained the nickname Black Jack Pershing for his leadership of Buffalo Soldiers. But he still had some prejudiced views, and he didn't really believe black units had much place in a white man's war. So he wasn't sure what to do with the stray regiments of the 93rd Division. Many American generals wanted to use them as labor troops. After all, that was all black people were really good for in their minds. That was what the 369th ended up doing when they arrived in France in January 1918, building railroads and draining swamps around the port of Saint-Nazaire. The only unit of the 369th that managed to get out of this work was the band. Pershing saw Jim Europe's band as a great morale-building tool, and he had them transported all over France to help raise awareness that America had arrived to save the day. The bandsmen were thrilled to see the sights of France, ecstatic at their reception, especially when their ragtime, syncopated version of La Marseillaise thrilled the French people. But the regiment grew frustrated. They were their morale was declining, because they weren't just musicians or laborers. They hadn't just come to be in France, they had come to fight. And if many in the American high command got their way, they never would. But the French were asking Pershing for reinforcements. They needed troops to fill the front line. Pershing promised them four regiments. And would you look at that, the 93rd Division consisted of four black infantry regiments with no supporting arms that the American army didn't really want. It was a match made in heaven. So Pershing handed off all four of the 93rd Division's regiments to the French as they arrived. On March 13, 1918, the 369th left Saint-Nazaire and marched towards the front to join the 16th French Division. Colonel Hayward put it this way. 
Our greatest American general simply put the black orphan in a basket, set it on the doorstep of the French, pulled the bell, and went away. I said this to a French colonel, and he said, Welcome, little black baby. The 369th was astonished to discover that the French treated them like people, like soldiers, like citizens and men. They weren't racially segregated at all. The French accepted them with open arms. They re-equipped the 369th with French weapons, helmets, and belts, though they continued to wear their American uniforms. The French trained them in trench tactics, how to conduct a raid, how to use their gas masks, how to cross no man's land, how to use bayonets and shovels in close quarters fighting. The French treated the 369th with dignity and respect, treated them just like any other unit, and the Harlem men ate the training up. But starting in March 1918, the Germans launched a final great offensive against the Allied lines, and every man was needed at the front. There was no more time to learn. It was time to do. So in April 1918, before most Americans even set foot in France, the 369th headed to the trenches. A regiment unwanted by their army and their homeland, determined to prove their rights as Americans, was about to descend into the hell of the Western Front. It was time to earn their name. Black American soldiers of World War I had two sets of eyes upon them. To black people back home, they were an inspiration. They embodied the hope that military service overseas could lead to equality at home. But white racists believed that the black man was naturally cowardly, lazy, and undisciplined, that he had no business on the front lines of a modern white man's war. Even some people who believed the Buffalo soldiers were good soldiers believed that World War I was inherently different due to its high complexity and the stress it placed on frontline units. It was believed that black soldiers would be particularly bad at night fighting, though it's this racist belief that black people were scared of the dark. Some US Army officers believed that black soldiers could perform well, but only under white officers, that black officers wouldn't perform at all. So many white observers not only expected, but kinda hoped that black units would fail. And this is why I remind you that racism not only makes you bad and wrong, it also makes you stupid. How else can you explain the Western Front of 1918, where the US Army seemed to actively sabotage its own units? But there were some units whose combat performance the Army didn't have a chance to sabotage. The four regiments of the 93rd Division, which served under French command throughout 1918, including Harlem's famous 369th. Having completed its training with the French, the 369th took up 4.5 kilometers of trenches on the western edge of the Argonne Forest. They were only 1% of all American forces in France, but held 20% of the front line currently assigned to the U.S. Army. I don't think I need to tell you guys that much about the Western Front. Maybe that's a future episode uh, where I go into depth on the trench warfare in the Western Front. But you can already see it in your heads. Blasted landscapes, barbed wire and obstacles and smoke, 
Huddled figures in tin helmets and trench coats splashing through the muddy ditches. The soldiers complained of enormous rats, bigger than they'd ever seen, and lice that swarmed over their skin. And of course there were the Germans, which the black soldiers called the Bush Germans, their version of the slang term Bosch. German snipers, machine guns, and poison gas were always a problem, but the big killer of World War I was always artillery. As soon as the 369th took up their positions, they were the targets of daily shelling, giant storms of shrapnel and fire that hammered the earth around them. Even for veterans of the Spanish and Philippine Wars, this kind of thing was an entirely new experience. Outside of major offensives by one side or the other, the most common form of Western Front combat was the trench raid. A platoon of soldiers would sneak across no man's land under cover of night. They would creep through bloody ravines and shell craters before bursting into the enemy lines like a bad dream. It would be hand-to-hand, -hand, bayonets and shovels and knives. The favorite American edged weapon of the war was the bolo knife, which they had adopted from the Filipinos. This nightmarish melee would end when the attackers withdrew, usually carrying a prisoner or two off with them. Prisoners were the main point of a trench raid. They were vital for gathering intelligence. Armies fighting on the Western Front judged the quality of their units, absent a major battle, on their ability to conduct and defend against trench raids, especially since night fighting is such a difficult task. A good unit was aggressive, deadly, and thorough. And the 369th was a good unit. Its officers, both black and white, showed daring and skill in the trench raids. Even the jazz pioneer Big Jim Europe led successful raids, his big round eyeglasses glinting in the light of the muzzle flashes behind him. Private Herbert White, from 2 West 137th Street in Harlem, recounted one trench raid a few days after the 369th arrived on the front. He and his patrol climbed over to the parapet at 3 a.m., but they were discovered. Maxim machine guns lit up no man's land with tracers, forcing Private White and his comrades to run to ground as artillery shells burst overhead. Then at 4 a.m. it began to rain in torrents, giving them the cover they needed to slip back to friendly lines. Not a successful trench raid, but they didn't all die, so you'll, you'll, they'll take it. <laughs> sometimes the Germans found them, and sometimes they found the Germans. It was the night of May 15, 1918. Private Henry Johnson, 20 years old, stood watch at Outpost 29. Born in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, Johnson had run away from home to find work as a baggage handler. His favorite hobbies were dice and drinking. Now he was all alone with another soldier, Private Needham Roberts, on the front lines of the Great War. And at 2.35 a.m., the Germans came. The two soldiers were alerted by the clipping of wire cutters, severing the barbed wire in front of their position. Henry Johnson fired a flare to signal for help, just as a salvo of hand grenades came rolling into their outpost. Both men threw themselves to the ground and were badly injured by grenade fragments. Henry Johnson staggered to his feet, bleeding from multiple wounds, as maybe 30 German soldiers closed in on the outpost. He killed one of them with his rifle, but the second one shot him in the thigh, before Johnson turned his rifle around and conked him in the head with the butt. Then Henry Johnson turned around and saw German soldiers gathering around the unconscious Needham Roberts, grabbing him, lifting him up, about to carry him off as a prisoner. They were trying to capture his battle buddy. 
what Henry Johnson did next can only be described as a berserker rage. Drawing his bolo knife, he hurled himself at the German raiding party. Johnson drove the bolo through the skull of one German, disemboweled another, then started throwing grenades into the darkness, screaming, flashing his knife, stabbing, punching, and yelling, before finally passing out. When American reinforcements arrived, they found Henry Johnson covered in 21 separate wounds, with four dead Germans around him, and drag marks where other casualties had been carried away. Both Henry Johnson and Needham Roberts survived, badly wounded, but alive and uncaptured. Henry Johnson's feat of heroism raced across the headlines. He had done what racists said that black soldiers couldn't do, fight bravely, diligently, with discipline and skill, at night, without a white officer watching him. The French awarded Johnson the Croix du Guerre. He became famous in the American press as Young Black Joe, his fight becoming legendary as the Battle of Henry Johnson. He was the black community's first bona fide hero of the Great War. But back in Harlem, some writers had their eye on the bigger war. One was James Weldon Johnson, the NAACP's field secretary. He couldn't help but notice two articles that appeared side by side in a New York City newspaper. One of them said, two Negroes whipped 24 Germans, referring to Henry Johnson and Needham Roberts. The other said, mob lynches Negro and his wife. So now it's time to talk about that second article. Because only days after Henry Johnson's heroic actions in France, Mary Turner died. And this is where I tell you, you might want to fast forward about 90 seconds. What I'm about to say was going to be really, really disgusting and horrible and bad. If you want to skip it, do it now. Okay. On May 16, 1918, plantation owner Hampton Smith was murdered in his home in Brooks County, Georgia. The killer was a disgruntled worker named Sidney Johnston, who had been repeatedly beaten by his boss. When the lynch mob failed to find the murderer, they started killing any random black person they came across. One of them was Hayes Turner, who, along with his wife Mary Turner, had also been beaten by Smith. Hayes Turner was arrested and placed in Lowndes County Jail, but a white mob kidnapped and hanged him before riddling his body with bullets. Mary Turner was Hayes' 23-year-old wife, mother of two children, eight months pregnant with a third. She swore that she would take the case of her husband's murder to the authorities and push it, but that wasn't what she was supposed to do when there was a lynching. So on May 19, 1918, the mob went after her too. They took her to a site northwest of Valdosta, Georgia. The white men hung Mary Turner up by her ankles, soaked her in gasoline, and set her on fire. She was still alive and screaming when someone slit her belly open with a knife, allowing her near-term baby to fall from her body. The baby gave two tiny cries before someone crushed its head with his heel. Mary Turner's burning body was riddled with hundreds of bullets before she and her baby both died. This is how the Atlanta Constitution reported the murders of Hayes and Mary Turner. Hayes Turner was hanged at the Okapico River in Brooks County. His wife, it is claimed, made unwise remarks today about the execution of her husband, and the people in their indignant mood took exceptions to her remarks, as well as her attitude. Ugh. 
Yeah. Yes. That that's a thing that happened. We found the worst thing I've ever talked about in this podcast. I'm I'm I still have trouble talking about that, reading about it. I had that was like take number 17. Guys, that was the story that ran in that New York newspaper across from the heroism of Henry Johnson. The valor of black soldiers on the war front and the sickening violence that awaited them at home. That was the black experience of World War I. Even as lynchings carried on in America, the war continued in France. So if you need to take a second to pause after that, do so. Because, you know, they didn't have a chance to pause. They had to keep fighting. So we're going to keep moving. Throughout the summer of 1918, the 369th was on the front line of some of World War I's toughest engagements. The Germans were launching their desperate final offensives, trying to eke out a victory before American numbers turned the tide. And the boys from Harlem were racking up campaign honors and casualties. The battles read like a blood-soaked walk through hell. The battles on the Aisne, where the black American soldiers repulsed one attack after another under sheets of German artillery fire. Bellow Wood, a battle famous in U.S. Marine Corps history, where the 369th charged through a storm of steel and recaptured Bellow Ridge. Then the Second Battle of the Marne, the turning point of 1918, where the 369th distinguished itself once again. Sergeant Bob Collins won the Croix du Guerre for wielding his machine gun in the hottest fire, and Captain Charles Fillmore, the black Spanish-American war vet, won praise for his cool-headed leadership during a gas attack. And they suffered. Men died from the machine gun's bullet, from gas, and always from artillery. Sergeant John Jameson remembered seeing Private James Turpin nearly disintegrated by an artillery shell. The shelling lasted another 12 hours as Sergeant Jameson crouched, nearly comatose, covered in the blood of his friend, a young patriot who believed in America and loved the flag. The combat performance of the 369th astounded the French. They called them the Homme de Bronze, the Men of Bronze. But legend has it that the Germans called them the Hullenkampfer, the Hellfighters. Like another American legend of World War I, the term Devil Dog for the U.S. Marines, this is another one of those supposed things the Germans called their enemies that made its way into the American press, but we can't find evidence for. But I think the name fits. Hellfighters is what they were. The 369th was the first black American unit to enter the war, but they weren't the last. The other regiments of the 93rd Division arrived throughout 1918, all fighting under the French Army. The 370th Infantry, once the 8th Illinois, had had most of their high-ranking black officers removed with various excuses, including the black Colonel Dennison. The, the white army did not want black officers above the rank of captain in any unit. But the regiment still performed well, especially the black junior officers. In August 1918, the 370th launched an assault that plowed through the German lines like a bulldozer, capturing 1,900 prisoners and 200 machine guns. Just like the 369th, the French gave the 370th quality training, treated its men with respect, set them up to succeed, and the 370th repaid this with battlefield success. The 372nd Regiment, like the 369th and 370th, was made up of high-quality National Guard units, but it suffered from immense distrust in its commanders. 
Its white colonel declared all the black officers useless and tried to have them removed, which shattered the regiment's morale. In September 1918, the 372nd suffered significant losses at Montoy, near the Argonne Forest. Its men performed courageously, notably refusing to retreat or surrender. But the men never trusted their new white officers, and this hurt the regiment's battlefield effectiveness. The 371st Infantry was a unit of draftees from North and South Carolina, and not much was expected of it. But it did surprisingly well, almost as good as the Hellfighters. The 371st went into combat in early April 1918, and they fought like lunatics. During the September battles near the Argonne Forest, one officer reported, We were subjected to a terrific counterattack. The enemy used artillery and gas and airplanes and rushed us with infantry and machine guns. We held our ground for seven hours, fighting part of the time with our gas masks on. Our casualties were very heavy that day. No soldiers could have behaved any better under adverse circumstances. The 371st Infantry shot down three German warplanes with rifle fire alone during the Battle of the Meuse-Argonne. 60 officers and 124 enlisted men from the 371st received the Croix du Guerre or the Distinguished Service Cross, higher than any other regiment in the division, even the Hellfighters. All the 93rd's units, black American units fighting under French command, racked up amazing, sometimes exceptional records. Most surprising was the 371st, which was a unit of black draftees which weren't supposed to be good soldiers but performed incredibly, working for the French. But those successes went ignored by the American High Command. Their focus was on something else. When American politicians debated sending black troops to Europe, one of the main arguments against it was that the Europeans would, um, spoil the Negro. There was a widespread fear amongst Americans that by welcoming black American soldiers, mingling with them, treating them like equals, the French would undermine the system of white supremacy that existed back in the American South. Worst of all in American minds was the thought of black American soldiers intermingling with white French women. You'll notice how much of a trigger this is for racists then and now. And from their point of view, white Americans had a reason to be worried because black soldiers were definitely looking at how the French treated them and how their own country treated them, and, well, they were drawing conclusions. In August 1918, a French staff officer working at General Pershing's headquarters published a secret memorandum for all French officers working with the U.S. Army. This memo, titled Secret Information Concerning Black American Troops, basically told the French army to stop treating black American soldiers well because it was making white American soldiers upset. In short, it was asking the French army to impose Jim Crow in their own country to placate the feelings of white Americans. Here are some choice quotes from that memo. We must prevent the rise of any pronounced degree of intimacy between French officers and black officers. We cannot deal with them on the same plane as with white Americans without deeply wounding the latter. We must not eat with them, must not shake hands, or seek to talk or meet with them. We must not commend too highly the black American troops, particularly in the presence of white Americans. Make a point of keeping the native population from spoiling the Negroes. White Americans become greatly incensed at any public expression of intimacy between white women with black men. 
So this was advice from a French officer serving at Pershing's headquarters, writing the memo that was partially dictated by American officers on how to deal with black soldiers so you don't make the white ones mad. Yeah, this didn't go over well. It didn't go over well with black Americans, especially when W.E.B. Du Bois got his hands on it and published it in The Crisis. It didn't go over well with the French government and French politicians condemned the memo. It didn't go over well with the French army, who pretty much ignored it and kept broing out with the Hellfighters and other black soldiers. And if their wartime service wasn't enough to make black Americans popular in France, Lieutenant Jim Europe and his Hellfighters band helped. When they weren't in the trenches, where Jim Europe suffered a gas attack while leading his machine gun company, the band played concerts to boost Allied morale. In August 1918, Jim Europe's band played in a massive concert at the Tuileries Gardens, and that night, with songs like St. Louis Blues and Memphis Blues, they introduced a new kind of music to the European continent. Europe remembered. We gave a concert in conjunction with the greatest bands in the world, the British Grenadiers Band, the Band of the Guard Republican, and the Royal Italian Band. My band, of course, could not compare with any of these, yet the crowd, and it was such a crowd as I never saw anywhere else in the world, deserted them for us. We played to 50,000 people at least, and had we wished it, we might be playing yet. The Hellfighters Band concert at the Tuileries is one among several possible candidates for the exact moment that Europe was introduced to jazz. In September 1918, General Pershing's American Expeditionary Force, the AEF, launched its final operation of World War I. The Meuse-Argonne Offensive is still the largest and bloodiest battle in American history, and all the Army's black units would take part. The 93rd Division and separate regiments under French command to the left of the AEF on the line, and the recently arrived 92nd Division as part of the AEF. The 92nd Division spent most of the Meuse-Argonne Offensive in reserve, but one of its regiments, the 368th Infantry, was given a critical task to serve as the linchpin between the 4th Army to their left, the French 4th Army, and the American 77th Division to their right, basically defending a gap between the French and American front lines. It is not exactly clear why Pershing chose this very inexperienced regiment with a dubious reputation already for this assignment. It would have been a challenge for even a veteran unit. The Argonne site of America's Great Battle of World War I was a terrible place to fight. It was a massive tangled rocky forest, a maze where units got lost easily. The 77th Division was famous for the saga of its lost battalion, which was cut off and surrounded by the Germans for days during the Meuse-Argonne battle. The Argonne was no place to put a lonely, inexperienced regiment when there were other units better fitted for the job. And then the U.S. Army failed to supply the regiment with any artillery support, or wire cutters, or signal flares, or grenade launchers, all considered necessary for a successful attack on the Western Front. Most of the white units got this stuff, the 368th didn't. The officers weren't even given maps. The Meuse-Argonne Offensive began on September 26, 1918. The 368th immediately ran into difficulties crossing the barbed wire without wire cutters. The lack of maps led to poorly trained black officers getting lost with their draftee soldiers adrift in no man's land. 
the poor trust between white officers and black officers, not to mention between white officers and black soldiers, meant that unit cohesion collapsed, command and control broke down, and entire companies broke and ran for the rear. The 368th Regiment spent five days on the front line, failing to advance against walls of artillery shells and sheets of machine gun fire with no artillery support of their own. Disgraced, the regiment was taken off the front line on September 30th. The army blamed the failure of the 368th on the cowardice of its black soldiers and the stupidity of its black officers. Papers were later published with titles like The Inefficiency of Negro Officers. Colonel Alan J. Greer, the 92nd Division's Chief of Staff, claimed, It is an undoubted fact, well known to all people familiar with Negroes, that the average Negro is naturally cowardly. Colonel Fred Brown, the 368th's commander, said, I wish to go on record as expressing my opinion that colored officers as a class are unfit to command troops in present-day warfare. Never mind that the 368th had received none of the necessary equipment or support. Never mind that its training had been hamstrung by systemic discrimination. Never mind that many of the white officers had panicked and hidden their bunkers, and that the regiment's poor tactics were partially their fault. And never mind that the soldiers didn't trust their commanders, and why should they? Look at what they just said about them. Compare the performance of an all-white unit. The 35th Division performed as bad, if not worse, than the single regiment of the 92nd during the opening phase of the Meuse-Argonne Offensive. But when the U.S. Army assessed the 35th Division, it pointed out training issues, morale issues, poor tactics, improper use of equipment, insufficient artillery support, bad communications and logistics. All the same issues as the 92nd Division. But when the 35th Division failed, that unit failed. When the 92nd Division failed, a black unit failed. The Army used the performance of the 368th Regiment to call the whole 92nd Division worthless. And after this, they couldn't do anything right. Even when the 92nd scored some major successes in the last days of the war, this wasn't enough to shake its reputation as a cowardly division. The Army would use the so-called failure of the 92nd Division as evidence against black soldiers and especially black officers. For the next three decades, the U.S. Army had given the 92nd Division the last of everything, borderline sabotaged its training and morale, denied it equipment and support in combat, assigned it a task that it couldn't really accomplish without that support, and then used its failure as evidence that black soldiers couldn't fight. This is what systemic racism looks like. And even as the 92nd fought in its unappreciated baptism of fire, the Hellfighters were waging their last battle. The 369th Regiment went into the Meuse-Argonne as part of the French 4th Army. Their mission was to advance through the rocky woods to scale Bellevue Ridge and capture the railroad town of Sichal. When they entered the Meuse-Argonne on September 26th, the Hellfighters began their most difficult battle of the war. It was a ferocious, bloody engagement, and the regiment took agonizing losses. The black American soldiers hammered forward against steel rain, men being cut down in great slashes and shrapnel and machine guns and low-flying German biplanes that buzzed them overhead. One machine gun company was almost wiped out. At one point, the Hellfighters advanced faster than the French forces to their left or right and found themselves isolated the entire night, clinging to a town. 
They hunted German snipers through the burning village, nearly running out of food in the process. Corporal Horace Pippin remembered. For two nights they gave us shell fire and the gas was thick and the forest looked like it were ready to give up all its trees every time a shell came crashing through. Trees would snap like a pipe stem. There was a big tree that stood by my dugout. It were a fine one, but when the shell fire started, the shells tore the top off of it. After nine days of straight combat, the Hellfighters were finally relieved. They had advanced 14 kilometers through some of the toughest German resistance on the Western Front, a record few other units could match. And in the process, the regiment had been decimated. Many of its battalions were down to like 30% strength. The French posted them to a quiet sector of the line, far to the east. They were still there when the guns went silent on November 11th, 1918. And on November 26th, 15 days after the armistice, they became the first American unit to reach the Rhine River. The 369th Infantry Regiment spent 191 days on the front lines on the Western Front, longer than any other unit in the U.S. Army, and they suffered the highest losses of any regiment at 1,500, including 144 killed. They never lost a foot of ground or a man taken prisoner. They only failed in one attack, and that was with insufficient artillery support at the very end of their nine days in the Meuse-Argonne. All its officers, black and white, had nothing but good things to say about their men's outstanding performance. The French regarded them as the single best American unit of the war. The entire regiment was awarded the Croix du Guerre, and 170 officers and men received the same individual award. The 369th Infantry is a strong contender for the U.S. Army's elite regiment of the First World War. In all its metrics, it was the unit, the best. World War I was over for the black American soldiers of World War I, Hellfighters and everyone else. But the real war awaited them back home after the armistice. War is often a catalyst for transformation, and very few conflicts have been more transformative than the First World War. It's one of the reasons I'm so obsessed with the First World War. There is a hard dividing line between the war world before and after it. Soldiers from all over the globe went home changed, some traumatized, some radicalized, some embittered, and some determined. The last of these applies to the black soldiers of World War I. They were not the same people. They had changed, and they were bringing the change home with them. The new spirit was prevalent in the Harlem Hellfighters, who had passed through fire and steel and come out victorious. The men of the 369th shouted from train cars, cheering and waving their hats as they made their way back across France, headed for home. Private Martin Miller remembered the exhilaration of the end of the war. The sun 
was shining and we were marching and the band was playing and everybody's head high. And we were all proud to be Americans, proud to be black, and proud to be the 15th New York Infantry. And this sudden emergent sense of self-confidence scared many white Americans. Proud to be black was the last thing they wanted the Negro to be. Mainstream America's new favorite word was normalcy. Return to normalcy. That sounded great to many Americans. The Great War's over, things can go back to the way they were. But black Americans didn't want things to go back to the way they were. In their eyes, they had served, they had fought, they had triumphed, they had earned their rights. Many believed they had had an implicit bargain with their nation, that in exchange for their enthusiastic and valiant participation in the war, the fact that they had fulfilled their obligations as citizens and men, that America would treat them like citizens and men. But America's leaders had no intention of honoring this bargain, if such a bargain had ever existed. One of the big reasons the army kept trying to discredit black performance in World War I was to deny them this bargain. After all, if black officers couldn't lead, if black soldiers couldn't fight, couldn't fulfill the obligations of citizens and men, then they didn't deserve citizenship or manhood. In January 1919, the 369th Infantry arrived in the port of Brest, where they would re-embark for New York from France. One of the regiment's privates got separated from his unit and approached a white military policeman to, you know, ask for directions. Without a word, the MP struck the black private across the head with his baton. Major Arthur Little, one of the 369th's white officers, came up and demanded an explanation. The MP confided, white man to white man, I got my orders. The N-words are feeling their oats, and I've been told to knock them back in their places quickly, so there won't be any trouble later. Yep, that's ominous. In 1919, W.E.B. Du Bois visited France and interviewed black soldiers on their war experiences. Du Bois had been an enthusiastic supporter of black participation in the war. He had seen it as their route to equality, citizenship, and manhood. But when he spoke to black soldiers, he learned how the U.S. Army had abused them, mistreated them, discredited their accomplishments, treated them as second-class citizens. Du Bois and many other black people were coming to realize that no amount of loyal service would change the minds of white racists. They would find a way to discredit it, dismiss it, ignore it. Waiting for white people to change their minds, trying to earn their way into society, had been Booker T. Washington's approach. That had been the Atlanta Compromise, that had been what people, black people had been doing since Jim Crow had been put into place. And black Americans had gone into war in 1917, believing that this was the chance to earn their rights. But if service in the war to end all wars wasn't enough, nothing would ever be enough. Black Americans had thought their sacrifice would change things, but when things didn't change, they understood the truth. They could not earn their place in America. They would have to take it. On February 17th, 1919, New York City had one of the most famous parades in its history. With Jim Europe's elite brass band at their head, the 369th Infantry Regiment processed down Madison Avenue, its helmets cleaned, boots polished, holding its rifles proudly. Wives came out to greet their husbands, holding up children that their fathers had never seen. New York turned out en masse, irrespective of color, to see the Hellfighters on their last march before they mustered out. It was more than just a parade. 
It was a triumphant assertion of black America's role in the Great War and the new spirit in black America. All over the United States, North and South, black soldiers returned from the war still in their khaki, marching with a new step and a new straightness and a new determination. But the positive reception the Hellfighters received was an exception. White racists had worried about a more assertive black community before the war, with Southern politicians openly worrying that military service would make the Negro uppity, insolent, troublesome, that the French would spoil him, and he'd come back expecting equality and fair treatment, challenging Jim Crow. But now there was a new fear. The Russian Revolution of 1917 had given rise to a global panic over the prospect of left-wing radicalism. In America, this paranoia is called the First Red Scare. And many Americans saw in black people the obvious seeds of a socialist revolution. President Woodrow Wilson shared this fear. He said, The American Negro returning from abroad would be our greatest medium in conveying Bolshevism to America. Attorney General A. Mitchell Palmer and his subordinate, a young man named J. Edgar Hoover, linked any black agitation for civil rights to socialism, seeing the NAACP as a socialist organization trying to stir up racial resentment. In reality, left-wing organizations in America were continually frustrated by their failure to enlist any black support. But that didn't stop paranoid government officials from blaming any unrest, no matter who started it, on the insidious influence of black insurrectionists puppeteered by white socialists. Of course, the government was only afraid black people would join socialist movements because, well, they had lots of reasons to hate the current system. Like, guys, you are so close. You are almost there. Who, who would have thought? You're, like, you're openly saying... Black people have lots of good reasons to hate the status quo. That might turn them to socialism. I'm like, yeah, but could you try fixing the reasons? Maybe? No, no, of course not. <laughs> W.E.B. Du Bois sensed the new confidence permeating the black community and the storm that awaited them. He summarized this attitude in the May 1919 issue of The Crisis in an essay called Returning Soldiers. This is a long quote, but a good one. A fiery one. We are returning from war. We return from the slavery of uniform, which the world's madness demanded us to don, to the freedom of civil garb. We stand again to look America squarely in the face and call a spade a spade. We sing. This country of ours, despite all its better souls have done and dreamed, is yet a shameful land. It lynches. It disenfranchises its own citizens, it encourages ignorance, it steals from us, it insults us. It decrees that it shall not be possible in travel nor residence, work nor play, education nor instruction, for a black man to exist without tacit or open acknowledgement of his inferiority to the dirtiest white dog. And it looks upon any attempt to question or even discuss this dogma as arrogance, unwarranted assumption, and treason. This is the country to which we soldiers of democracy return. This is the fatherland for which we fought, but it is our fatherland. It was right for us to fight. Under similar circumstances, we would fight again. But by the God of heaven, we are cowards and jackasses. If now that that war is over, we do not marshal every ounce of our brain and brawn 
to fight a sterner, longer, more unbending battle against the forces of hell in our own land. We return. We return from fighting. We return fighting. Make way for democracy. We saved it in France, and by the great Jehovah, we will save it in the United States of America, or know the reason why. That's the long version. The short version came from a black railroad worker, a Great War veteran, who told a reporter that, We have been through the war and given everything, even our lives, and now we are going to stop being beat up. The war had sparked a political awakening across black America. They couldn't wait for things to change. They would have to make the change. So the soldiers came home from one battle to another, what Du Bois called the more unbending battle. It began with the worst year of racial violence in American history, called the Red Summer. There were many reasons for the violence of 1919, like the Red Scare and labor unrest and the beginning of Prohibition and the economic crisis. But the root cause of the violence were black war veterans that threatened the status quo. White racists were trying to reassert their supremacy over what they saw as uppity Negroes who needed to be put back in their place. It began in April 1919 in Jenkins County, Georgia, when a white mob torched a black church and rampaged through the countryside, killing six black men. It flared up again on May 10th in Charleston, when white sailors mobbed into the black neighborhoods and began burning buildings, resulting in the U.S. Navy imposing martial law. The violence spread like a virus to Texas, to Arizona, to Indiana. But the real chaos erupted in July. Washington, D.C. was gripped by four days of mob violence, the nation's capital paralyzed by crowds of white men attacking black neighborhoods. White mobs raced down Pennsylvania Avenue in full view of the White House, pulling black men off streetcars and beating them bloody. Other cities followed. Norfolk, Virginia. Omaha, Nebraska. Philadelphia, Baltimore, Knoxville. Chicago, Illinois saw the worst urban violence of the year. The city was a virtual war zone for days, resulting in 38 deaths in large sections of the city damaged by gunfire and burning. There were a total of 39 separate urban race riots in the red summer of 1919, and 43 individual lynchings, with at least eight black men burned at the stake. In every single case, white mobs started the violence. Race riots in the North, lynching and the destruction of black communities in the South, everywhere the anger and the fire and the blood, the KKK in its robes and hoods riding through the night, mobs with guns and nooses stalking the quiet backwoods of Georgia and Mississippi. Lynchings ran wild across the Jim Crow South, with some black Southern veterans murdered just for wearing their uniforms. This was the Red Summer of 1919. The most shocking violence came in September and October near Elaine, Arkansas. Attempts by black sharecroppers to form a union invoked the fear of a black socialist uprising. A white militia went on a rampage that approached the level of genocide, shooting any black person they saw running, capturing and torturing others for information on the so-called uprising. The Arkansas governor called in the U.S. Army, which promptly joined the white mob. As many as 237 black people may have died in the Phillips County Massacre, often called the Elaine Race Massacre. Lynching and race riots, as we have seen, were not new in America. 
We saw East St. Louis in 1917 and Mary Turner in 1918, each of those only one example. The Red Summer of 1919 was not unique for having lynchings and race riots. It was the highest level ever in American history, but it wasn't unique for the events themselves. But there was something new. Something had changed. Because for the first time, black people were organizing and fighting back. When Woodrow Wilson refused to call out the National Guard to stop the mob in Washington, D.C., the city's black community armed itself and drove the rioters back. Then Wilson called in the guard because, you know, it wasn't a problem when the white mobs were running around, but when black people started defending themselves, oh, now we have a problem. In Chicago, black war veterans coordinated the defense of their city blocks from the Irish mob. In Knoxville, Tennessee, when the state militia tried to use machine guns against the black neighborhoods, black veterans of the 92nd and 93rd took charge and outflanked them, forcing the militia to pull back. Black resistance inflamed white racists, causing the violence to escalate, spreading across the nation's headlines, drawing everyone's attention to the sheer brutality and poisonous rage of white supremacy. One black woman in Washington, D.C. remembered how she felt when she realized that her community was fighting back. The Washington riots gave me a thrill that comes once in a lifetime. I was alone when I read between the lines of the morning paper that at last our men had stood like men, struck back, were no longer dumb, driven cattle. When I could no longer read for my streaming tears, I stood up alone in my room, held both hands high over my head, and exclaimed, Oh, thank God! The pent-up humiliation, grief, and horror of a lifetime, half a century, was being stripped from me. Black Americans were also organizing politically. The NAACP and other black organizations swelled in membership, with W.E.B. Du Bois pumping out issue after issue of the crisis throughout the Red Summer, reporting on the violence. The NAACP's field secretary, James Weldon Johnson, and his assistant, Walter White, crisscrossed the country, reporting on the violence, making speeches, organizing new chapters and meeting with politicians. Johnson himself coined the phrase Red Summer for the blood that ran in the streets of Chicago and stained the brown mud of Georgia's lynching trees. Black organizations set up legal defense funds for 12 black men sentenced for the Elaine Massacre and succeeded in getting their convictions overturned. Ida B. Wells Barnett spearheaded this effort, drawing attention to the injustice of the American legal system that massacred black people in Arkansas and then put black people on trial for the supposed uprising. She mocked the fear of a black socialist uprising, pointing to the Elaine Massacre and asking, If this is democracy, what is Bolshevism? Guys, I'm, I'm barely glossing over this. Like, the Red Summer of 1919 is huge, massive. So many things went down. It was just this horrible volcano of violence and racial destruction. It is one of the most forgotten major events in American history. And once again, forgotten on purpose. The violence didn't stop with 1919. Two especially brutal events were still to come in the next few years. The Tulsa Massacre of 1921 and the Rosewood Massacre of 1923. But in both of those incidents as well, black World War I veterans became part of the story. Black veterans in Tulsa defended their communities from the white mob. And when the KKK wiped out the black town of Rosewood, Florida, local legend had it that a Harlem Hellfighter had emerged from who knows where to defend the locals against the KKK. See, 
The Red Summer was more than just violence. It was the beginning of something. It was the emergence of what came to be called the New Negro, a term that black people themselves used to describe how they had changed. The political and cultural awakening of a black America that would defend itself against violence and inequality, that would square up to Jim Crow and segregation and racism. Contrast this to what they called the old Negro, who conformed to the status quo, kept his head down, and tried not to rock the boat. William Scarborough, black scholar and president of Ohio's Wilberforce University, described it this way. The spirit of the Negro who went across the seas, who was in action and who went over the top, is by no means the spirit of the Negro before the war. It is a new Negro that we have with us now. The New Negro Movement, the political awakening of black America, goes hand in hand with the cultural awakening known as the Harlem Renaissance. The Harlem Renaissance's start date is usually set as February 17, 1919, the Harlem Hellfighters parade through their city. The Harlem Renaissance was artistic and literary flowering, a new movement of self-expressive black pride. The poetry of Langston Hughes, the novels of Zora Neale Hurston, plays and photography and films, and most of all, jazz. Louis Armstrong, Duke Ellington, U.B. Blake, and Noble Sissel, who had once been drum major for the Hellfighters Band. But when American historians usually list the names of jazz pioneers, one name is missing. Jim Europe, who U.B. Blake later called the Martin Luther King of Music, who had done so much to pioneer jazz in America and introduce it to France. The Hellfighters band stayed together after the war ended, and Europe took them on tour across the nation, even planning a world tour. But one of his drummers, Herbert Wright, hadn't been quite right since the war. Wright had shown unusual behavior since coming back from the trenches. He was going into laughing fits and staring off into space and acting antsy and jerky. He had been under shell fire and machine gun fire seen his friends dead and wounded in the red hell of trench warfare, and it had done something to him. One night in May 1919, Jim Europe told Herbert Wright off for his erratic drumming and odd behavior. Herbert Wright snapped and stabbed him in the leg. Jim Europe died hours later. His name has mostly vanished from history, but he ranks among the great jazz pioneers, on par with Duke Ellington and Louis Armstrong. Lieutenant James Reese Europe lies in Arlington National Cemetery. Herbert Wright was not the only hellfighter who seemed to be unable to leave the war behind. Henry Johnson was a war hero, and like many war heroes, he was expected to talk about his experience over and over, to relive it for the adoring crowds that wanted to hear his tales of valor. But they didn't want to hear the messy stuff. They wanted to hear the cool patriotic stuff, not the reality of what the hellfighters had been through. Sergeant Johnson smiled and grinned and nodded and retold the worst night of his life over and over until one day he broke down. He gave a speech in St. Louis in March 1919 that laid out the sheer racism the Hellfighters had faced, the horror, the trauma, the brutality of the Western Front. I have seen so many dead bodies piled up that when I saw a live one, I didn't think it was natural. After telling the truth about war and not the cool, fun image, Henry Johnson stopped getting speaking gigs. He turned to alcohol to cope with his depression and trauma. His wife divorced him, he lost his job, he dropped off the radar. 
The black American war hero of World War I died alone in a VA hospital in 1929 and, like Jim Europe, was buried in Arlington. The Great War left its scars on these men and countless other black soldiers of the war. Hellfighters like Horace Pippin, who became the most famous black painter in America but couldn't stop painting the trenches. James Henry Jackson, whose family had to keep him from committing suicide decades after the war. The Red Summer, too, left its scars, psychological and physical. More black people died in the racial violence after the war than during the war. But something new had started when the Hellfighters came home from the Great War. I've read a lot about all of this, guys. I've read a lot. <laughs> and something weird that strikes me about black Americans after World War I is the optimism. With World War I behind them, they only saw the battle ahead of them. Despite all the darkness they'd been through, the hell of white supremacy they were under, and the struggle yet to come, they were almost unbelievably optimistic. Because now they were up, they were fighting, and Jim Crow was on the defensive. They began to realize that this would be a harder, longer, more difficult fight than the one against the Germans, but they had won that one, and they would win this one too. In the wake of the Red Summer, black poet Claude McKay wrote, If we must die, let it not be like hogs, hunted and pinned in an inglorious spot, while round us bark the mad and hungry dogs, making their mock at our accursed lot. If we must die, oh, let us nobly die. The Great War had transformed black America. The NAACP and its fellow organizations, the black community as a whole, began to move up the long, difficult road that led to equality. Jim Crow and segregation were powerful, seemingly invincible enemies. But if the Harlem Hellfighters could face down the Germans overseas, black people at home could face down the mob. They had stormed the trenches of the Western Front, and this had, somehow, no joke, given them the courage to storm the more difficult fortress of white supremacy. There was still a long way to go before the Civil Rights Movement, desegregation, Rosa Parks, Martin Luther King, and the defeat of Jim Crow. But that road began here, when all the black soldiers of World War I had come home and taken up the challenge of what W.E.B. Du Bois had called the more unbending battle. When they had returned from fighting, and returned fighting. So what does it all mean, James? What's the point? Why should I care? Guys, that was the story of black Americans in World War I. Not just the Harlem Hellfighters, not just the black soldiers carrying arms, but a community transformed and awakened by the Great War. I hope you learned something today. I hope you learned a lot. I delved deep into black history, especially the history of racial violence in America. And as a white man brought up in the South, some of this research, guys, was kind of tough. <laughs> it's kind of emotional. Like, this was some of the most emotionally difficult historical research I've ever done. I'm surprised I was able to talk about Mary Turner. But I hope you understand why I did. The history that makes us upset and uncomfortable to hear might be the most necessary. A lot of people want that old, nasty racial history to stay buried. In a lot of cases, there is a code of silence in the communities where the Red Summer took place. They still don't talk about it. They still don't want to hear about it. There's still no recognition of it. 
But as Jesus said in the Bible, there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. If the truth about history hurts, that's an us problem, not a history problem. We have to talk about it. We have to talk about it honestly. We have to confront it. To wrap up today, I want to point out the contrast. I want to go back to the third part of this, second and third parts of this episode, and point out the contrast between two U.S. Army units, the 92nd and 93rd Divisions. I gave you all the detail about where these units came from and how they were trained and organized. I, did, I gave you all that detail for a reason. There was a broader point in that. The 92nd was recruited from unwilling draftees, trained indifferently, led by black officers who weren't trained well out of racism, and white officers who hated their own men, and it failed. The four regiments of the 93rd Division were recruited from volunteers, led by volunteer officers that their men mostly trusted, trained by a French army that wanted them to succeed, and they succeeded. My one I'm drawn to the most is the 371st Regiment, which was part of the 93rd, but was also made up of black draftees and white Southern officers, and did very well, because it was actually given a chance, even though it wasn't the same human material as the 93rd. It was closer to the 92nd in its composition, but because it was given a chance and the support it needed, it was a successful, magnificent unit. And you might say, duh, of course. From a military standpoint, you can see all the factors that led to how these two units fared in combat. So, of course, the Army focused on the 92nd Division's failure and decided that it was because its men were black, and ignored the four regiments of the 93rd, including the Harlem Hellfighters. And this case study shows us how systemic racism works on a societal level. The system was rigged for the 92nd to fail, and the Army used its failure as evidence against using black soldiers. The results of racism were used to justify racism. And now that we've seen that in a military history context, we can see how systemic racism works in many contexts. It's why I say again, loud and clear, racism isn't just immoral and incorrect. It is also illogical, unscientific, and stupid. One final point I want to make before I leave you guys today. Things did get better. Guys, America still has racial problems. I will never deny that. America still has major issues in lots of areas. But if you think we haven't made any progress since 1919, after hearing all of this today, I don't know what to tell you. It turned out that the period after the armistice was the darkness before the dawn. 1919, the Red Summer, that was the peak of racial violence in America. It never hit that level again. The nadir of American race relations before, at long last, the universe started to bend towards justice. In 1948, 30 years after the Harlem Hellfighters crossed no man's land, President Harry S. Truman officially desegregated the U.S. military. Brown v. Board came six years later, the Civil Rights Act ten years after that. When Ahmad Arbery was lynched in 2020, which is what it was, the death of Ahmad Arbery was a lynching, his killers were tried and convicted of murder, which never would have happened in 1920. They probably would have been joined by other people. For all of America's problems in the modern day, and there are plenty, there is no Jim Crow. And finally, the Hellfighters are being recognized. With a graphic novel by Max Brooks of World War Z fame, with 
the popular shooter game Battlefield 1, where a Harlem Hellfighter is one of the main characters and features prominently in the advertising, and with the obligatory song by Sabaton on their new album, which, you know, who doesn't have one by this point, and with Monuments. There are finally monuments being raised to the Red Summer for lynching victims, so their history won't be forgotten. And if you think that racism is gone in America, consider that, you know, they raised Mary Turner's plaque in 2013 and people keep shooting it. Kind of like how they keep shooting Emmett Till's plaque in Mississippi. But, you know, the people aren't being murdered in by public mobs anymore, so progress, right? In 2015, President Barack Obama awarded Henry Johnson a posthumous Congressional Medal of Honor for his valiant night fight on the Western Front. And in 2022, it was announced that Fort Polk, Louisiana, named for a Confederate general, would be changing its name to Fort Henry Johnson. Though I've been to Fort Polk and I wouldn't want my name on it, but you know, it's the thought that counts. The lesson is that positive change can happen, will happen. The universe does bend toward justice. But people have to bend it. It has to be fought for. Progress is not automatic and inevitable. You can't wait for things to inevitably get better. Black Americans tried that before World War I and things got worse. No. The struggle has to be taken up, even when it seems hopeless. W.E.B. Du Bois had a short, powerful quote. He was good at that. The man was a genius. That struck me so much I saved it for the end. He said, pessimism is cowardice. Pessimism is cowardice. The optimism the black community showed in the light of the Great War and the Red Summer should inspire us. For most of us in the first world today, none of the battles we face are so unbending as the battle against Jim Crow. They won. We can win. Have courage. Have faith. Have optimism. And come back fighting. Thanks for listening to today's episode. I hope it taught you a lot, inspired you, maybe hurt you a bit, but that's okay. History can be painful. Oh shoot, I almost forgot. Uh, Jim Europe and the Hellfighters Band? There are recordings. There are surviving recordings of them playing. Go to YouTube, check it out. Especially check out uh, On Patrol in No Man's Land. That's my favorite. Seriously, there's, there's recordings of the band. They're awesome. Go check them out. If you like what you've heard today, tell your friends about it. If you don't, tell your enemies. If you want to read a lot of stuff I've written about World War I, or if you want my sources, including many good books on the Harlem Hellfighters and Black Americans in the military and the Red Summer... It's all on my website at unknownsoldierspodcast.com and in the link in this uh, episode, in the episode description. If you want to contribute to my book fund, I have a donate button there as well. I am on Facebook and Twitter at UNK Soldiers Pod, or just drop me a line at unknownsoldierspodcast at gmail.com. I always appreciate feedback and commentary, so lay it on me. Thanks once again for sticking with the podcast. See you again on April 24th, where we will learn about more unknown soldiers from an American war, though it'll be less gruesome. Look out for episode number 45, Daughters of Liberty, about the women of the American Revolution. Only here on Unknown Soldiers. (laughs) 